0: Hi, I'm Wilson Gall,
1: and I'm Ellie Roark.
0: This is Fledgling Theories, the podcast bringing you recent, interesting research about birds. You can find us on Twitter at Fledgecast or on our website, FledglingTheories.podbean.com. Today, we're going to be talking about the article "Range Expansion and Population Dynamics of an Invasive Species: The Eurasian Collared Dove, uh, Streptopelia decaocto." This is by Spencer Scheit and Alan Hurlbert. Um, from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This was published in PLUS One and uh, in 2014. And we're talking about this study today uh, in celebration of the holidays and in particular the Audubon Christmas Bird Count, which many of you may have just participated in or might be getting ready to do.
1: Yeah, we thought it'd be a little festive to bring you a, a study that actually uses some of that data. Yep. So this study presents us with an interesting problem, which is that um, when you have an invasive species like the Eurasian Collar Dove in North America, we want to know where it's going to colonize and what's going to happen once it gets there. And so usually when you have, um, when you're trying to figure out where a species is, uh, you can use these species distribution models to tell you about the distribution of the species. So Wilson, do you want to tell us a little bit about species distribution models?
0: Yeah, almost always, the way a species distribution model works is there are some sort of what we call predictor variables, which are basically conditions that you expect to matter for the bird. So maybe temperature or the type of habitat, you know, whether it's forest or grassland or whatever. And you use that to sort of explain or understand the number of birds. So so you might have something that says, you know, when there are... Is more continuous forest cover, we expect the number of um, wood thrushes to go up.
1: Right. So if you know something about what kinds of places, what kinds of habitat wood thrushes like, then you can look at where that habitat is, and figure out where the wood thrushes are.
0: That's right. But those models are almost always based on presence or abundance, like the number of birds, and that's how you figure out these relationships, is you look at the number of birds in these habitats, and that's how you build your model. That doesn't work with an invasive species, Um, and the reason is that those models where where you're modeling abundance, or the number of birds in a habitat, really only work in cases where the species is at equilibrium in the environment, which means that It has found all the good places and settled there. It has left all of the bad places. So that if there's a good habitat, there will be birds in that habitat. And if there's a bad habitat, there won't be birds there.
1: Right, so you can imagine that if you, you know, boxed up a bunch of woodpeckers and then released them in somebody's lawn with no trees, if you did account for birds there, you'd find a bunch of woodpeckers on a lawn, but that doesn't actually tell you anything about what Area woodpeckers like,
0: yeah, you couldn't likely
1: wouldn't be there for long.
0: You couldn't use that in a species distribution model because in that little situation there, those birds are not at equilibrium with that environment. They're basically leaving that lawn as fast as they can. Right. And so if you just take a snapshot in time, you're going to get a bunch of woodpeckers on a lawn, but that's not actually a good description of the relationship between lawns and woodpeckers. Right. So so your model would be all messed up. Um, and so. You'd have to wait until all those woodpeckers have left the lawn, have had time to find some good uh, woodlands, and then you would say that the species is sort of at equilibrium with that environment, and then it would make sense to count the number of woodpeckers on the lawn, which will now be zero or very close to it, count the numbers in the surrounding forest, and then you could do some sort of a, a distribution modeling Thing there.
1: Right. But if you're interested in trying to anticipate what is going to happen with an invasive species that's coming in and colonizing an area, you don't want to wait for the invasive species to take over, find all the good habitat, leave all the bad habitat, basically colonize the entire possible area before you figure out what's going on. You want to be able to anticipate that and say, okay, here's where we think it's likely to go. Here's what we think the population is going to be like.
0: Right, but right now you couldn't do that with data from, in this case, North America and the Eurasian collared dove because there's plenty of very good habitat with very good weather where there are just no collared doves, but not because the habitat is bad or the weather is bad. It's just because they haven't gotten there yet. Right. So if you used the sort of data you have to build a traditional species distribution model of abundance or, or probability of presence, it wouldn't do very well because the birds are not yet actually sort of embodying the relationship between the environment and their presence that they will do eventually
1: yeah so basically the key difference for this study what they were doing trying to uh anticipate the population of these eurasian collard doves this invasive species is that instead of modeling the abundance the number of collared doves currently in the habitat. They modeled the population growth rate and the carrying capacity.
0: Right, so really they're measuring a very different thing than species distributions models usually do. Instead of measuring the current distribution or or predicting or modeling the current distribution of the birds, they're measuring and then predicting, in the case of carrying capacity, the total number of birds that that habitat can hold at the maximum, sort of like the the maximum number that it can support. Right. Not necessarily the number that are there right now.
1: Yeah. So uh, the data they use to do this is really cool and something that we've participated in and maybe many of you have participated in, um, the Christmas bird count and the North American breeding bird surveys. So these are really cool uh, citizen science efforts where normal people go out and count birds. So the Christmas bird count has been going on for like 120 years almost, since 1900. And basically it's a 25 kilometer diameter circle. There are thousands of these all over the the country at this point, all over North America. And you go out and and count all the birds you can, both the number of birds and the number of species in a, a 25 kilometer diameter circle. But it's been going on for, yeah, 118 years, and originally it started as a way to replace a tradition of a Christmas bird hunt. So in 1900, you know, amateur ornithologists and conservationists were concerned with conservation of birds for the first time, noticing population declines in many places, and so they decided to... Um, Keep the tradition of going out and spending Christmas with the birds alive, but instead of killing them, we'll count them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I think that first year there were something like 25 or 27 different locations across the country that did it. There were some in California, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. I think there was one in Pueblo, Colorado.
1: Yeah, Louisiana, Canada. Pretty heavily concentrated in the northeastern U.S., Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut. But, yeah.
0: But kind the, of all over yep but the tradition has really taken off since then and so there's this this hundred and twenty year data set um, where at the same time every year people have been going out and doing this and and they're all over now I'm sure there's there's one within an easy drive of wherever you are if you're in North America or at least in the US
1: yeah we're posting this kind of a right at the end of the Christmas Bird Survey Christmas Bird Count window because I think they In January 5th, but you can go look it up online if you haven't participated yet and see if there's one in the next couple of days where you are, if you're in North America. The other data set they use is uh, the breeding bird survey, which is not, hasn't been going on for quite as long, but is a really cool continent-wide breeding season survey. And that's been going on since 1966. And it's, instead of a circle, it's a 24 and a half mile long driving route, and you basically stop every half mile and get out and do a three minute point count.
0: So the bird that this study is looking at is the Eurasian collared dove. This is a, a fairly recent arrival to North America in the last 30 years or so. I think it, it arrived in the 80s, if yep. I recall correctly. Um,
1: detected in the 80s anyway first
0: detected in the 80s yep originally i believe from india is that correct ellie
1: yes that's correct that's my understanding it's native to india but it's spread it's pretty effectively colonized most of the globe at this point it's spread to north america and to asia i'm not sure about the population in africa at this point but
0: it's well established in europe
1: yes very well established in europe at this point
0: it's quite a pretty bird if you haven't seen it it's um you might have mourning doves near you or there's a lot of doves that that kind of have elements of this bird, but it's sort of a light cream color with a dark neck band. Really kind of elegant, one of the more elegant doves, I think.
1: Yeah, they're really pretty. Um, and they were first found in the U.S., or first detected on the Christmas Bird Count and the Breeding Bird Survey in um, South Florida and the Bahamas. So the, the Christmas Bird Count circle in the Bahamas is the first place they were uh, detected in these data sets, anyway. And so they've been spreading basically from that gulf area up through the rest of the continent.
0: And so this study is asking some interesting questions about the carrying capacity, but also about the growth rate and in relation to where those first populations were discovered, uh, and sort of asking what happens to the, the population dynamics as this bird sort of invades and then becomes established in an area.
1: Right, so so there, one of their primary study questions is trying to estimate the population growth rate and the carrying capacity for sites across North America, and they hypothesize that sites closest to the initial point of invasion in the South Florida area with older populations are likely to have reached carrying capacity already at this point, and that sites along the range expansion front are likely to still be kind of have, have exponential population growth. The population is booming along the uh, expanding range.
0: So in order to study this, um, when they're studying population dynamics, they're doing it using some sort of pretty classical uh, ideas from ecology, and, and that is that there are a couple different shapes of a sort of population um, trajectory over time. So basically, if you think about just one Christmas bird count circle for now, just a single site. And if you think about the number of Eurasian collared doves there that have been seen over time, over the years, you can sort of imagine at the beginning there were none, so in 1970 um, there were no birds, and then over time uh, a few birds appeared, and then the population would start growing quickly, probably, and it would sort of speed up as there get to be more and more birds and a real established uh, breeding population establishes, and this would be that exponential growth pattern. So no birds at first, the line is at zero and flat. And then um, as they start to breed there, the, it, the line sort of starts to curve up faster and faster and the population grows faster and faster.
1: Right, but it can't grow that quickly forever.
0: Yeah, that's right. That, that exponential, So that so that's one classical type of population growth, that exponential growth, that yep. steeply increasing line. And sort of by definition, that can't go on forever at some point the number of birds will will exceed the resources. Either there'll be more birds than there is food or there won't be enough nesting sites or something will force that exponential population growth to slow down.
1: Right. And so that's when you kind of reach the population necessarily has to level off a little bit. And that's what we call the carrying capacity, roughly.
0: That's right. And so the second kind of sort of classical curve they have is what is called a logistic curve of this population growth. And basically, it's a little hard to describe the shape of this curve, but imagine an escalator, right? one of those moving staircases in the mall or something. If you view it from the side, at the bottom it's flat, and then there's sort of a curve as it starts to go up. And then in the middle it's just going up, uh, sort of a straight line, straight diagonal line going up. And then at the top it starts to curve and level off again, and then you're on the next floor. That is this logistic uh, sort of shape of a population growth. Where there's none at the beginning, then it sort of speeds up and grows for a while, and then slows down and levels off. So that's their, their second shape, and that's a population that has basically reached the carrying capacity, and that the number of birds where it sort of levels off there in the population is the carrying capacity. And then the, sh- the third type of shape that they use, that they're, that they're looking for in these populations, is a hump shape.
1: So that would be like the population grows but then declines for a little while.
0: Yeah, it's basically a hill. It, it starts low and then it goes up and then it reaches a peak and then starts coming back down.
1: So what would cause that kind of overshoot of the carrying capacity, Wilson?
0: Yeah, basically the the reason that it comes back down is that, that the number of birds at the peak there is actually more than the environment can sustain. Um, and there might be any number of reasons that happens. It's, I think it's... Probably not uncommon that populations sort of go a little above what can be sustained, and then there's a little bit of a population, like like, not a true population crash, but a decline. It goes down until it's a little below the carrying capacity. And so now there's some extra resources, so the population starts growing again, but it maybe grows a little too fast or a little too far, grows beyond the number of resources. The other thing that can sort of cause this is if there's, um, you know, maybe predator and prey dynamics. Uh, If you have Uh, a prey, and the population grows really high, then at some point, the predators, um, there'll be a bunch of prey to eat, and so the predator population will grow, and then there's a bunch of predators that then sort of start overwhelming the prey population. So then the prey goes down, and then there's not enough food, and the predators go down. So there, there are all sorts of reasons that a population might fluctuate up and down around that carrying capacity, but basically that's what's happening with these hump shapes is... There's been the population growth. The, the collared doves have, have arrived. They've colonized. They've really established the breeding population. They've gotten that breeding population so high that they're beyond the number that can be sustainably supported there, and the population is starting to go down a little, at least.
1: Right, so we anticipate, or these authors anticipate, that that is the situation in places where the collared doves have been established for a long time.
0: Right. What the... In South
1: Florida and, and places where they were initially introduced.
0: That's right. One of their main predictions that they're looking for is that the oldest populations are the ones that are most likely to have already gone through the complete growth phase and to have either reached that carrying capacity, that's the logistic or the sort of the escalator curve, or they've sort of exceeded it and are now on a little bit of a downward swing. Yep. Whereas the populations right at the range expansion front are probably still in that exponential growth phase and have not hit that carrying capacity yet.
1: Yeah. So really what they're looking for is to try to figure out how, if those, those kind of population curve trends are distributed systematically across the landscape. So then the other primary question that this study was looking at is um, trying to figure out what variables they can use to predict the carrying capacity of a particular place.
0: Right. So this is basically the alternative way to do a species distribution model instead of Uh, analyzing how many birds there are, they're trying to analyze how many birds there could be when the population finally finishes establishing there.
1: Right, so based on what we know about where birds are and what kinds of habitats they're occupying in places where they are well-established, what can we figure out about where they might be eventually?
0: I suppose it's worth just mentioning briefly that you might think that you could just do the uh, species distribution model with abundance, by using data from Europe and Asia. Like, use the data from the places where they've already colonized in in Asia and Europe, and figure out how that relates to habitat and weather, and then apply that to North America and figure out where the suitable areas in North America are. And you can do that to an extent. The trouble with that is that it is, I think, fairly frequent that invasive species do not behave in the same way in their new areas that they behaved in their native or original range. And that can be for any number of reasons, but but I think especially part of it is the other species that are around. There might not be their traditional predators there. There might right. not be traditional food sources. And so it often doesn't work very well to sort of study a bird in its native range and then use that to predict where it's going to end up in the invaded range. And so right. that is why they do sort of want to use data from North America to predict what the birds going to do in North America rather than using data from Europe and Asia to predict what the bird's going to do in North America.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like just for example, you know, we currently live in Ireland, but we're from North America. In North America, European starlings are everywhere, huge flocks of them. You almost can't do a point count without getting a starling on it anywhere where we've birded regularly. And, you know, here in their native range, they're not uncommon, but it's, it's way more infrequent that we have a starling on a checklist.
0: Yeah, they're way less prevalent here.
1: Yeah.
0: In the same types of habitats. Yeah, same types exactly. of suburban habitats.
1: Right. So anyway, they had kind of two predictions about the important variables explaining carrying capacity. They thought that the distance from the invasion point and the population age should be predictors for bird abundance in any given year.
0: And they got population age basically by just looking at the data. So the first year that a that a Eurasian collared dove is recorded in the Christmas bird count circle is the first year of the population age. That's like age one. And so there's an assumption there that the bird was detected the first year that it was actually there. Now, of course, that's an assumption. It's almost certainly not true. There are almost certainly cases where there were some Eurasian collared doves in that area, but they didn't get seen for one or two or three or four years or however many years. And so, but there's no way to know how long that period was that they were there and not seen. And so you right. can't really you can't really correct for that or adjust for that in any way. You just sort of have to say, well, we know they were probably there for a little while before we found them, but for the purpose of the analysis, you have to just use the first year of data. But this is why it's really important to report all the species that you see, even if you think it's not a native species or it's an invasive species or it's an escape from, you know, a pet or something, because you can't be sure. It's better to record that bird and say, you know, I saw a, I saw a collared dove, but I think it might be an escaped pet. If it's really an escaped pet, then in future years, there won't be any more collared dove seen, and that'll sort of be clear in the data. But if that's actually the start of a breeding population, 10 years down the road, we're really going to wish that we had that first year of data <laughs> right. when there is just one bird there. And so it's really important to record those species, make a note you know if if you don't think it's really living there for whatever reason but still get it in the data set it's always easier to for an analyst to throw out data that you don't want later than to wish you have wish you had data that you don't have
1: yeah that's true it can be definitely hard to get some of those vagrants on initial checklist, too, because when you're not expecting to see something, it's much more difficult to identify it. So if there's another species that looks kind of close to it, I guess these authors talk about a turtle dove. I'm not super familiar with Florida birds, but um, there's some species of turtle dove that, I guess, looked similar enough that people may have confused identifying those birds for, for a while while this, while the Eurasian collar dove was initially uh, yeah, establishing. I think,
0: I think that's very possible. When we lived in Wisconsin, the, the eurasian collar dove looks close enough to a mourning dove that if I wasn't paying attention, I think it's very possible that I could have seen a eurasian collar dove sort of in the distance sitting on a telephone pole and just sort of not even given it a second look and sit, written down mourning dove. You know? so it's, right.
1: What you're expecting to see dictates what you see a yeah. lot of the time.
0: <clears throat> but it's worth paying attention for, for things like this.
1: Yeah, totally. And then the other important prediction that they made is that um, developed and agricultural land cover will be positive predictors for the carrying capacity. So basically, Eurasian collared doves will like kind of partially developed land and agricultural land better than urban, highly developed land and better than forests.
0: And that was based on some other studies uh, that have been done both in North America and in Europe and Asia. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that this is mainly a grain-eating bird. So they need some, you know, grass or, or seeds or stuff like that. So dense city isn't going to work. Um, forest isn't really going to work very well. They sort of need some some scrubby edge habitats. Or, you know.
1: Yeah, right. No. And what they found, the result for that particular hypothesis, was um, that they were mostly correct. That's the collared doves really like... Kind of mediumly developed single family home suburban type habitat, but they found a distinction between cropland and pasture land in terms of agriculture. So they they really like cropland that has some of those seeds, uh, grainy type food source for them, and the pasture land does not do it so much for these yeah. birds. Yeah, which is
0: worth noting, so we haven't talked about it, but one of the data sets they use for their predictor variables here is the National Land Cover Data Set for the U.S., which is basically satellite uh, imagery that is used to figure out what the the rough types of habitats or the rough types of land use across the whole continent. So it's a huge data set. It's used in a lot of um, studies, probably some of the other studies we've talked about on this podcast, I would guess use it. Um, But the land classes are categorized in a in sort of a couple different levels of detail. And at sort of the coarsest level of detail, it's things like, you know, agricultural land, forest, water, and urban areas. You know, there's, there's few categorizations. But that agricultural category actually combines, you know, crops, like corn or wheat, and pasture land, like grazing land for cows or sheep or whatever. And so if you're analyzing at that coarse level of just all agricultural fields, that wouldn't actually get at the relationships for this bird because it turns out that this bird has opposite relationships with crop, which is beneficial for this bird, and pasture, which is not beneficial. So right. you, you actually, future analyses probably need to analyze those finer levels of, of agricultural land.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so what they found, so these, re, these habitat relationships and climatic relationships that they found allowed them to basically create a map. Of predicted carrying capacities for Eurasian collar doves in the US.
0: So if you happen to be looking at the article online, it's a, it's an open access article, so you should be able to get it free online. The link is on our Podbean page. This is figure four. So it's a map of the United States and basically the the darker shading means higher carrying capacity or, or higher populations once the bird has finished establishing. Right,
1: so this is a prediction, a predictive map of, of what um, the, co- the country will look like when it's covered with collared doves. <laughs>
0: yeah. And so this is cool. I mean, this is very cool. For one thing, you know, here's a testable prediction. They've yep. built their model. They've got a prediction and as the years go on, the data comes in, we'll be able to test the predictions here against real data. Also though, this would be a very useful thing if you're a manager or if you're, if you're concerned or interested in the expansion and the colonization of this invasive species, there are some places, uh, where it just doesn't look like the species is ever likely to become super common. Right. Sort of the northern forest in the northeast. uh, And in the Midwest. And in the Midwest, where it's, you know, Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, some of northern Wisconsin, Michigan, probably too much forest there. Right. Not enough agriculture. And
1: so you can imagine that that too will likely, this map doesn't extend into Canada, but you can imagine that the northern forests in Canada are likely to have a similar thing. Mm -hmm. Just no Eurasian collar doves.
0: Yeah. And then there are some, obviously some areas with a very high predicted carrying capacity and the bird nest isn't necessarily there already, but those are areas where it's expected to be very common once it gets there.
1: Right. They expect that like the agricultural lands outside of Los Angeles will get pretty high, high density population of collar doves among other places.
0: So that's that's the carrying capacity prediction that that prediction is basically about when that logistic or escalator curve levels off, what's it leveling off at, you know, 100 birds per Christmas bird count circle or 10 birds per Christmas bird count circle.
1: So then what so then we talked about kind of all those different potential shape populations and that they were looking for patterns in the distributions of those shapes. What did they find? with that, Wilson.
0: Yeah, so in the in the distributions of those shapes, or so there's different types of population trajectories, they found pretty clearly what you would expect, which is that at the invasion front, it's those exponential growth curves. The, yeah. the population is just going up and up and up, steeper and steeper. And the oldest sites, so the sites in the Bahamas and Florida, um, and the areas close to that, actually have hump shapes for the most part, where mm. the population has gone up and and is now coming back down. And so this is interesting because the other thing that you could very reasonably find there is that logistic, or or sort of the escalator shape, that goes up and then levels off. If this was a species that sort of grew, and then the the population slowed down and leveled off at carrying capacity, then in those oldest populations, we see that sort of escalator thing where it levels off. But mostly they're seeing that hump shape, which suggests that this is a species that tends to overshoot the carrying capacity. Yeah. They, the population gets too big initially in that initial growth spurt mm. and then has to come back down, which is sort of an interesting and worthwhile thing to know. You know, if you're a little behind that invasion front or you're at that invasion front and you're seeing populations of collared doves just exploding and they're just appearing all over the place, it is sort of useful and worthwhile to know that they're not necessarily going to stay at those super dense, super high levels. They've right. probably overshot. They're probably gonna come back down a little bit. And what I mean what you'd expect, I guess, over time, as the as the years continue to go by and this data continues to come in, is that those old populations in the Bahamas and Florida that have this hump shape where it's going down again, at some point, I would expect it's not gonna go down forever. The population's not gonna to totally crash and disappear there. Right. It's gonna go down a little bit until it's kind of below the carrying capacity, and then it'll start to come back up again. And you'll probably see sort of waves or yeah, fluctuations. Yeah, that kind of wave.
1: Yeah, so in terms of kind of managing um, panic about invasive species, which is sometimes prevalent when a new one shows up, the understanding those those population growth curves can help us figure out how, how the species is going to affect the, the rest of the environment and, and um, the extent to which it's likely to take over.
0: Yeah, and I don't. I mean, I think we should even back off that statement. But I don't think there's any reason to panic about the Eurasian collared dove. Certainly,
1: no. Of yeah, definitely
0: uh, and, not. And many other species. You know, there's always a concern that well, maybe it's really going to push out native species or something. But frankly, for the most part, that doesn't happen in most cases. Uh, I, I just. I think they even mentioned that in the discussion here. That there just are not many examples where it's documented that an invasive species really drives a native species to extinction. So, so that's one concern, you, you know, we're, it's probably not going to drive native doves or native pigeons to extinction. Yeah. I don't think you need to worry about that really.
1: Not many examples in birds or not many examples in general? I don't
0: think in general, I mean, I- Because I,
1: I would be really curious to look at that with like aquatic invasives or things like that where there is like real panic about invasive species driving out native species.
0: Yeah, I, this is well beyond my area of expertise. So, Me too. I, so I don't know, but I can't think of an example.
1: Yeah, Hmm.
0: I cannot think of a study I've read where invasive species drove natives extinct that are not island situations. Mm -hmm. It's it's one thing in the Hawaiian Islands when you get some, you know, a predator like a rat comes in and and eats all the ground nesting birds. That's one thing, but but on a continental thing like this, I mean, you know, maybe they're out there. Um, If if any of you listening know of those, you could certainly let us know on Twitter. Send
1: them our way.
0: Send them our way. but but anyway, certainly for the Eurasian collared dove, you don't need to freak out if you see one there. It's, it's going to change the ecosystem without right. a doubt. Yeah. Um, and, and ecosystem changes widespread uh, and, and is very frequently sort of one of the follow-on effects of human changes to the environment. We change the, the habitat. We transport species. We do all these things. And so it changes the ecosystem. But... Um, that invasive species is going to have that explosive population growth, and then at some point, it's going to hit that carrying capacity and start to level off or go down, and there's going to be some sort of a new, different balance, but but a balance that establishes there.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think it's just, I wanted to mention it because the uh, the term invasive species, I think, is a, is a little bit of a hot-button uh, term, and people people can get a little bristly when you talk about invasives as you know, a totally negative thing, although, you know, the history of the world is species invading new places, colonizing new places, so.
0: I do think it's interesting in this, you know, the the approach that this study took, though, to try to predict the growth rate, so how quickly that population will grow, and also what the eventual carrying capacity will be, because, um, you know, and, and predict that based on the habitats that are already there and the weather conditions that are there. And because it does let you sort of understand what areas, you know, there there are without a doubt areas where invasive species sort of become way more dominant than they do in other areas. Right. Um, And so it's worth trying to understand what about an area makes it susceptible to having invasive species really come in and become the, the hugely dominant species there. Um, because there are places where that happens, and then there, there are places that otherwise seem pretty similar where that doesn't happen. The invasive species gets there and sort of gains a little foothold, but doesn't really sort of take over. It just sort of is, is one among many species and doesn't become dominant. And that's yeah. what the study is, is trying to get out and model a little bit. Yeah. So they used two different data sets in this study. The Christmas bird count, which we've talked a fair bit about, but also that breeding bird survey and the results were not quite the same with the two different data sets.
1: Oh that's right.
0: There are a couple reasons for that. One of them is that um, the sort of the level of detail that Christmas bird count is a pretty big circle, 25 kilometer circle. The breeding bird survey, the surveys are in a 400 meter buffer on either side of of a couple mile road. It's a long,
1: it's 25 mile road transect.
0: Yes, um, but but it's short three-minute counts at points along this road transect. And right. so the total area that they survey is much smaller. Um, so that's one difference. There's yep. obviously the time of year. The breeding bird survey is in the prime breeding season for most birds, which is
1: May sort of and June, May and yeah. June and
0: spring and summer. Christmas bird counts in the winter. Uh, so there could be differences related to that. But um, I think to the best of anyone's knowledge at this point, um, there's no winter migration or flocking or movement or anything of Eurasian collared doves. So, you know, the, the differences I don't think are due to birds migrating into the breeding areas, hmm. you know, Eurasian collared doves migrating to breeding areas, being detected in the breeding bird survey, and then leaving those areas and being detected somewhere else in the Christmas bird count. I, right. I think yeah, they're I pretty think so much stationary populations in North America is my understanding. Um, it should be noted that most doves and pigeons can also have the ability to breed kind of at any time of year, whenever conditions are good enough for them. I think most of the breeding probably still happens in that spring and summertime, but um, it's it's not like some other birds where sort of the breeding is strictly confined to a little window and the breeding bird survey is going to capture really different bird behavior than than the Yeah, Christmas they're bird
1: much now. more like other pigeon and dove species that have a, a really wide range of, yeah. of breeding.
0: So this study basically thought that most of the differences in the results between the breeding bird survey and the Christmas bird count data had more to do with the, the structure of the data and the setup of those monitoring schemes than it had to do with the birds. They don't think there's that much of a difference in, in what's happening with the birds in the different times of year. It's more about how those birds are detected during the monitoring protocols. Yeah. Which, which is fine, you know, and it's part of why you use a couple different data sets when you're looking at a question like this, because you can, you can take it as guaranteed that the specific data set you're using, no matter what that data set is, has some peculiarities that will sort of change your results slightly in one way. So it's, always, it's <laughs> always useful to be able to get two different data sets and sort of do the same analysis with the different data sets and see the points on which they agree and the points on which they don't agree. Right. Um, the the general trends about these population growth shapes, um, you know, the hump shapes in the older areas and the exponential growth and in the invasion front, that comes across really clearly in the data sets. Yep. Um, some of the specific habitat variables are a little bit different between the data sets, but they generally kind of tell a s- similar story about, um, you know, the agricultural areas and the the birds not liking forested areas and things like that.
1: It's pretty cool that North America has these two data sets that have been so long running and provide pretty decent abundance estimates, relative abundance estimates for for the birds over the course of the whole year because we have winter data and breeding season data.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are just, maybe I can go out on a limb. I might be wrong about this, but I would almost say there are no data sets as good for as long as the Christmas bird count data set, at least not many in the entire, you know, globally. There are just very few data sets that cover 118 years with at least a roughly similar sampling protocol Right. Same time of year, those sorts of things. Yeah, I
1: feel like that's the difference. There are a lot of other long-running data sets that that just collect species lists, you know, presence or absences, things like that. But having the, like, relatively standardized effort and abundance estimates is so cool.
0: Yeah, quite a great data set. Yep. So once again, the study, if you're interested in looking it up and reading it for yourself and maybe looking at that figure four, that map of where the the dove is expected to um, be, uh, the article is called Range Expansion and Population Dynamics of an Invasive Species, the Eurasian Collared Dove Streptopelia decaocto, by Spencer Scheit and Alan Herbert from uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. It's published in Plus One, uh, 2014, and the DOI is uh, 10.1371 backslash 510. The link is on our webpage, fledglingtheories.podbean.com.
1: Thanks for listening. And if you've enjoyed this podcast and have enjoyed our other episodes, please don't forget to uh, go on to iTunes and rate the podcast and um, you can subscribe so that you never miss an episode.
0: The funding for my PhD position comes from a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland. I'm at University College Dublin in the Ecological Modeling Group of John Gearsley. If you want to find out more about our research in the Ecological Modeling Group, you can go to www.ucd.ie backslash